0: This is Someone Like Me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast, working to educate listeners about the realities of human trafficking and empower survivors of this crime by telling their stories. I'm Leslie, your host. When victims of sex trafficking are brought into the court system, it's usually for a charge or charges that are unrelated to the trafficking itself. Instead, it's often because of things like drug charges or other crimes that are wrapped up in trafficking and the lifestyle it sets up for these victims. Many court systems across the United States have set up programs to identify those coming through on unrelated charges who may need help with an underlying issue like mental health, veterans' needs, addiction, and trafficking. They call these treatment courts, and there are several in the United States that are designed specifically to address human trafficking. In Nashville, the human trafficking court is called Cherished Heart's It's a two-year program involving hands-on communication with the presiding judge, assistant district attorney, and a host of local community service providers that can assist with managing the various needs of a survivor. It's often way more personal than what you may think of as a court. They meet together often and are given resources to help with stability. Within the Cherished Hearts Court are two other day-long programs called Grace Empowered and the John School. You may remember our episode last season with a volunteer at the John School. It's a really interesting perspective about the consequences for men who are paying for sex. Now, the Grace Empowered program provides women who have prostitution charges an opportunity to get those charges removed through a day-long program which addresses things like trafficking, addiction, and trauma. In Slavery Tennessee is incredibly involved in this program, as we know that prostitution is often paired with and related to trafficking. It's this collaboration with Cherished Hearts, Nashville's Human Trafficking Court, that's an important part of the In Slavery Tennessee referral process. It helps in identifying persons eligible for the comprehensive services provided by In Slavery Tennessee's care coordinators, which includes walking with survivors through complex legal issues many of them have. So in today's episode, producer Stacey Elliott and I talked to Judge Anna Escobar and assistant district attorney Sarah Wolfson about how the court system can help victims of human trafficking.
1: Okay, let me start with the first, would you rather would you rather be completely invisible for one day or be able to fly for one
2: day? I mean, that's easy for me. I would rather be able to fly for a day. And why? What? Well, I would just go all the places that, you know, Bob around, maybe take a little pit stop in Hawaii and have myself a nice day. And technically, then I will be invisible. No one will know where I am.
1: Ooh. She pivoted
3: that. She so pivoted. She Look at that. Yes. Look at that. Man. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Sarah, you took all the creativity out of that. Um, <laughs> you know, I I wouldn't rather be invisible because I wouldn't want to know what people are thinking about me. <laughs> I would rather fly around too, just uh, to have a day for me so I could see all the things that I've always wanted to see. Would you rather
1: all traffic lights be green Or never have to stand in line
3: again? All traffic lights be green because I need help getting places on time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mine is never have to stand in line again. Okay. Because I can sit in my car and listen to a podcast or music all day, but like me standing in line is... It's the shuffling from one foot to the other, and it's the people are getting too close to you, and I can't. Mm-hmm. That's not for me. No,
0: mm-hmm. well, that's good. Opposing answers. I like it. Mm-hmm. I do too. Well, where I'd love to start after our rousing round of Would You Rather, could each of you introduce yourself, your name, your role in the justice system, and then
2: how that relates specifically to our conversation about human trafficking court today? Sure. My name is Sarah Wolfson Butler. I'm an assistant district attorney here in Nashville and I prosecute all of our promoting prostitution and human trafficking cases here. And I also staff our Cherished Hearts Court for Survivors of Human Trafficking with Judge Escobar.
3: My name is Anna Escobar. I've been a lawyer a little bit over 25 years in Nashville. Um, in 2018, I had the privilege of being elected to General Sessions. My day job is that I listen to domestic violence cases three months out of the year, but I also preside over cherished hearts, which, as Sarah said, is our human trafficking survivor court.
0: Great. So I'm going to pull way back for a second so we can just get context of human trafficking court. On a broad scale within our criminal justice system, there have been individual courts established that kind of help address social issues relating to crime, correct? Correct. Correct. Is that the right way to say that? Is there a better way to frame that concept?
3: I believe what we call them are treatment courts. So it's it's non-traditional way of looking at the judicial system and sentencing. So there are several treatment courts in Davidson County. We have veterans court, mental health court. We have two or three addiction courts, recovery courts, and then ours.
0: Okay. And where does that fit in context with the traditional system?
3: So we are able to work with a participant is what I call them, Okay, a participant for a longer extended period of time. In our case, it's two years. The great thing is we get to know the person. Um, Usually at the beginning of the program, they come to court once a week. So we get to know what's happening in their lives, how their treatment's going. They are given the opportunity to go to addiction treatment. Once they're there, then they will transition to outpatient treatment, and then they start their trauma therapy. During that time, like I said, they are checking in with case managers, probation officers. We try to be as supportive as possible. Obviously, in a traditional court, it's more of a transactional thing, unfortunately. You come, if the case is proven by the state, you get sentenced, you're on probation, and not until something has gone wrong will you come back and see the judge. And the judge really never gets to know what's going on with the person, what their background was, what has brought them to the justice system.
0: And it's much longer. It also looks really different. I think you said you don't even wear a robe,
3: right? Correct. So we try to make it as trauma-informed as possible. We all Mm. sit around a table. I don't wear a robe. We usually try to do something fun to kick it off, either having cupcakes or having a speaker come and then we get to the nitty-gritty of of the business. We have about 8 team members and they're all dispersed among the participants so it's not, you know, participants on one side and team members on another. We're all integrated together and everyone's given a chance to speak and we're able to provide feedback to the participant.
0: About how many participants are in Is there a cap? Is there a number?
3: There is no cap. Our court has only been in existence for three years. And as you can imagine, with COVID and other situations, we've um, had some difficulties. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've not gotten as many applications because of COVID. But we have recently started accepting new applications, and we're excited to be screening more participants. But on average, we have about 10 participants.
0: Okay. Is this the only court in Tennessee...
3: We are the first, I believe. Isn't there one that is combining human trafficking with mental health, I think? There's a hybrid out there.
0: But the concept of human trafficking court is rather new in this country, correct? When did they start getting formed and how many are there across
2: the country, do you know? So there, at the time that that our Teres Hearts Court was started, there were only I think five in the country that existed. So Ohio has always been kind of the leader of um, human trafficking response, although Tennessee has quickly taken that position. But uh, the court in Ohio, I believe, is the oldest in the country. They have a human trafficking diversion court as well that functions, you know, fairly similarly to ours. Uh, New York has one. I think Texas has one. But in terms of the kind of availability of these types of courts. They need to be more widespread than they are right now. Mm -hmm. Slowly but surely, I think that other states and jurisdictions are picking up on um, this need. Yeah. What
0: happens if there's somebody who is in trafficking, but doesn't have a court system near them, doesn't have something like this that can help them? I mean, that kind of gets into referrals and how you get your participants. But- are those people out of luck when it comes to things like that?
3: So you in order to come to our court you do have to have a criminal charge or probation violation for us to be able to accept you into the program. I see. So unfortunately you do have to be involved in the criminal justice system. And I
2: would add that for surrounding counties we have always been willing to work with their probation if Someone in a surrounding county were to say to us, you know, I have a a woman on probation and I think she's being trafficked and I would like her to be supervised by Cherish Hearts Court. That's a conversation that we're certainly open to having um, because we understand that many of the smaller counties around may not have the ability or capacity to start an entire court like ours. But there are cities all over the country, like I said, who don't have access to this kind of court. And there are people who are being trafficked in all of those cities.
3: I will say that many of our participants are criminally involved in many jurisdictions, and I will applaud many of our surrounding counties will allow us to supervise the participant not only with our case, but the case in the other county. So they're trusting us to supervise. So I'm very pleased that they're open-minded and allow us to do that.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Sarah, you alluded to Ohio being the leader at one point, and then transferring that to Tennessee, which I you know we're very proud of that. But what makes the distinction? What what was the change that happened?
2: Sure. So I would say, just to clarify, that's the rating that we've received from a global standpoint that Tennessee has re- ranked number one in our response to human trafficking. But that doesn't mean that you know other states are not also doing a fabulous job and may not have gotten there first. So Ohio, like I said, had I think the first, if not the biggest now, it's about 10 or 11 years old now, Human Trafficking Diversion Court. So again, the the analysis of the states that are kind of leading in human trafficking response comes from a lot of different factors. And one of those factors, I would say, would be our diversion efforts. And Ohio certainly was the leader in that. And we actually had the privilege of going out to Ohio to visit their human trafficking court because we can always learn a lot from other states. But that said, we are very proud of everything that Tennessee has Mm -hmm. done to get us to that spot.
0: And by diversion, you are meaning when someone comes through the criminal justice system, being able to see that there could be trafficking going on and then getting them specifically into.
2: Exactly. So I, I call it a diversion court because... It is diverting these criminally involved currently women – we only take women right now – but it's diverting these criminally involved women away from jail or traditional probation and into a trauma-informed setting where we believe that we can provide the appropriate kind of support that would decrease – recidivism rates and and allow them to reenter into society. So when I use the word diversion, I, I mean diversion from traditional methods of prosecution and sentencing.
0: Okay. And you are the one who's actively looking at these cases and would be referring, is that a good word? Or you said applicants. What are the things you're looking for that would
2: trigger a diversion into So I typically am actually not the one handling the cases of the women that we are screening for our court. Usually these women have charges that are not actually related to human trafficking or prostitution at all. Usually their charges are anything ranging from drug charges to thefts and burglaries, things like that. So I don't actually handle their cases, but I work closely with my office and with the defense bar and with judges and so does Judge Escobar to educate everybody who may be in contact with these defendants that could maybe get an inkling that they should be screened for Cherish hearts. So we rely on, honestly, mostly the defense bar and my colleagues in the DA's office to get us those referrals. Gotcha. What are the things
0: that you're telling them to be looking for? Are there specific red flags that they should be looking for?
3: I have found that at that point a defendant isn't speaking for themselves. They don't know what city they're in. They don't really have an explanation of where they live. They don't seem to have any of their own property. That's a huge red flag that something is happening, that they're not in control of their lives.
2: Right. And a huge amount of our referrals come out of, like I said, our general sessions courts and our domestic violence court. A lot of times a trafficker will come in maybe as a boyfriend, and the defendant could be, you know, a female who's charged with assault. And the things that I would recommend that especially the people in my office look for are history. So we look at their criminal history, see if they have a criminal history of prostitution could be a big indicator, see if they have a extensive out-of-county and out-of-state history, have they moved around a lot, how did they get here, and also the type of charge is very informative. Oftentimes, if you read the warrant, On these charges where there's a possible trafficking situation, it will be a intimate partner or somebody with a maybe much older male or maybe the incident occurred at a motel or a hotel or, you know, this person had IDs on them that weren't theirs. Things like that that we look out for in criminal warrants as red flags that trafficking might be taking place.
0: Yeah. So prostitution has been brought up a few times and I'd love to talk from a legal perspective about prostitution versus trafficking because there are some crossovers when it comes to the background of the victim. A lot of them have similar backgrounds, pimp culture, runaway culture. Legally, where do those two things stand
2: on their own? How are they different So the difference between, let's say, a promoting prostitution charge and a human trafficking charge would be force, fraud, and coercion or a minor. So promoting prostitution is what I sort of like to refer to as like your everyday pimp where he may buy a hotel room for a girl, he may drive her around in his car, but ultimately the female is in control and making the decision herself. And that is a time when we would actually charge I'm using female because most of the time these are females, but there are male trafficking survivors, just to be clear. But just for this purpose, I'll use female. That is when we would charge a female with prostitution. If, you know, that person is engaged in sex for money, but they are in control of that interaction, there may not be a promoter. Sometimes there's not kind of a pimp or somebody who's, providing security involved. Sometimes it's just this woman on her own or man. But when we're talking about human trafficking, we're talking about somebody who is, yes, engaging in sex for money, but there's that element for adults of force, fraud, or coercion. And our statute is pretty extensive about what force, fraud, or coercion could look like. One of those things could be controlling access to controlled substances. So oftentimes a trafficker will control the behaviors of the survivor by controlling their access to a substance that they're addicted to. The legislator has enumerated that as a method of coercion. When there's a juvenile involved, it is always human trafficking. It used to be that there could be a juvenile prostitute. Those do not exist anymore. Kids cannot be prostitutes. They cannot be charged with prostitution. Anytime time that somebody is engaging in sex for a benefit with a minor, that is human trafficking. And what year did that change? So the legislation sort of started to shift about 10 years ago. Over the course of maybe, I would say, 2010 to 2016, there was a lot of development in our human trafficking laws, especially as they relate to minors. Okay. So let's say
0: someone is in human trafficking court but also had drug charges or there might be other things at play, mental health, can there be multiple courts that are involved at the same time?
3: So we are lucky to have a team that has somebody from the mental health co-op sitting there. We have somebody who knows about recovery, trauma, and the case managers or social workers who who are very informed. So within our court, if a person needs mental health treatment, they have a liaison through the mental health co-op, and they will get the person the care and medications that they need. So there's not that need to go from court to court. Same with the recovery. You know, we try to get them, as I said, into inpatient treatment and then outpatient treatment and any follow-up that needs to be done. And then we have our own therapists through the um, sexual assault center that meet with the client once a week. So we hope to house all those things in one place.
0: Okay. So let's talk about the program and the sorts of things that go into Cherished Hearts. In our first season, we had an episode featuring someone who
2: was a volunteer at the John School. The John School is for people who have been charged with soliciting prostitution. So that is an A misdemeanor now. It used to be a B misdemeanor. We're not necessarily saying that people who attend the John School are perpetrators of human trafficking. If that were the case— we would prosecute them for human trafficking. Ah, yeah. um, but they are typically men who have sought sex for money, and we want to address that issue and the underlying needs for why that was happening as well. Mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to address supply unless you're also going to address demand.
0: Right, exactly. So what is that? Is it a day? Is it a weekend? What does it look like?
2: Sure. So John School is held on scattered Saturdays once a month or so. The woman who runs it is wonderful. I speak at the John School about the laws, about culpability. And also one of the things that I highlight to the men in the John School is that it is not a pretty woman scenario. There is probably a 0% chance that the woman who they have just paid to have sex with them wants to be there. And so we just try to burst their bubble. And also, you know, again, we sort of have speakers that can address their underlying issues. You know, why were you going out to seek sex from a stranger? And I do also make it very clear to them that patronizing prostitution is very dangerous. They could be killed, robbed, beaten. It's not a walk in the park for anybody if you're going to engage in high-risk activity. So that class costs them $375. All of that money goes back to Thistle Farms and they have to also get a i believe a mandatory std test and then they once they complete the class we will dismiss and expunge that charge but they only have one shot to do it so if they're caught again soliciting prostitution then we will address that via jail or probation have you seen any success stories or what kind of success stories have you seen come out of this? It's hard to track success of the John School, although I will say the recidivism rate is very, very low in terms of we don't usually see return customers, if you will. Mm -hmm. Usually once someone has attended the John School, we are not seeing them pop up again as soliciting prostitution. I have had a man or two approach me and tell me, you know, that the class had a massive impact on them, that they just weren't aware of oftentimes the trauma of the person that they were going to try to buy. You know, they weren't aware of X, Y, and Z. They weren't aware of why they even wanted to do this and that this class had some kind of big impact on them. So that's always nice to hear.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a fantasy that I think people are, I think about prostitution and about that experience and you're telling them the truth. You're trying to make sure that they understand, hey, this is not a fantasy. It is, well, their fantasy, but it's not the truth.
0: Stacey and I talked about Pretty Woman specifically in prepping for this interview.
2: It was a bit of a rabbit trail, but it was a great conversation. I find myself referencing movies a lot when I'm talking about human trafficking and prostitution. Mm-hmm. The way that we portray the commercial sex industry in film and on television is damaging. It's... Created a narrative where I do think that glamorizing it causes issues, especially for men who are seeking that. I also think that the dramatic way that human trafficking is portrayed is extremely damaging. So, kind of on both ends, there's so much media surrounding this issue that has kind of made reality slip away for people who are involved in it. And that's again why education is so important. We cannot take Liam Neeson's word for what human trafficking looks like. I was like. just going to bring up Taken.
0: <laughs> I mean, I feel as though there is a sort of battle with media for truth. This is part of why this show exists, to tell real stories so that you're more often hearing real stories than you are watching Taken and seeing people who are
2: swept up into vans and sold into trafficking. Absolutely. And it all goes back to what's palatable for people. And- The more that we marginalize survivors who don't have the taken story – the worse off we are as a community at curbing human trafficking because we're not acknowledging what the real stories look like. And again, when we're seeing all of this on the media and then I tell you this very real story of a survivor here, but she had access to a cell phone. She wasn't injected with heroin and she certainly wasn't swept into a white van in Russia. It is harder for people to stomach that, to make mm-hmm. that palpable for them, to be able to say that this person is as much of a victim and a survivor as... Liam Neeson's fictional daughter. So mm-hmm. I think again you're right it's 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 a struggle with how this is portrayed and I hope that at some point maybe we can have some more realistic imagery. Yeah,
0: yeah, right.
2: I, I think there's also a big this wouldn't happen to me or my family element of things mm-hmm. and escapism is such a huge part of our media these days and you know our television and our movies that we choose to watch. So basically telling somebody like, let's put on a movie about like some very foreign trafficking incident that would never happen in our backyard. People are like, oh yeah, for sure. But you say like, let's put on a film that like really highlights the struggles of trafficking here locally. It's like, I don't know if I want to watch that. So it's a lot of it is just addressing what people want to see, what's interesting to people versus what is reality. Well, and we've talked about intersectionality
0: and culpability. I think one of the things that makes taken so great for people is it's these middle class girls that are just going off to have a fun time and they've been completely swept up. Whereas the reality is, you no, know, there's so much more at play. Drugs, domestic violence. And I think it's hard for people to look at all of
2: it and still really care about the issue. Exactly. Trafficking is so reliant on vulnerability. So whatever that vulnerability looks like, traffickers are adept to picking out people who have pre-existing vulnerabilities, whether that be a runaway juvenile with an unstable home life, a woman who may have a prior addiction or a woman who they could get easily addicted, somebody who is in the criminal justice system, that is a vulnerability. Once you're involved in the criminal justice system – That is something that a trafficker can hold over somebody's head. You mean to say like probation or explain that a little bit? Well, so let's take a woman again. So there are situations where a woman may have been arrested. There are a couple of avenues in which this would make this woman more vulnerable. One of those avenues is her bond. Maybe a man that she's close to makes her bond and he has her work to pay that bond off. That's a vulnerability that has led to her trafficking. Mm -hmm. Another one is, you know, let's say she goes to jail or to prison. She gets out. She can't find an apartment. She can't find a job. She can't find any stability. And she meets somebody who says, well, I can give you stability. Here's some drugs. And that'll make this work easier. You go out and work. And she does it for a while but doesn't want to. Well, guess what? You're not leaving. Trafficking. So, again, these are just examples but it's exactly what you were saying. It's not usually this just, you know, middle-class gal with a a wonderful upbringing, although that does happen. It happens, yeah. It's usually somebody who has a vulnerability that's existing that a trafficker is preying on, Mm -hmm. which again, marginalizes these survivors from our community in, you know, a million ways that they feel that they're not worthy of the help that we try to give them and That's a whole other spiral. Yeah. Well, I know in this work, we have found that a lot of survivors for a long time don't even recognize that they've been trafficked. Oftentimes when a trafficker is arrested and charged with trafficking, especially when I have a juvenile victim, it is challenging to get that victim to acknowledge that what happened to them was trafficking. Typically, they're not ready to go there and that's okay. It just takes time. Another area that I see this all of the time is in our Grace Empowered class, which is our class for women who have been charged with prostitution. Similar to the John School, our Grace Empowered class is a one-day class meant to address the underlying issues and, again, vulnerabilities of these women who have been charged with prostitution. And once they complete the class, we'll dismiss and expunge that prostitution charge. So I run that Grace Empowered class, and it's every single class that I see women who it'll be, raise your hand if you've ever associated with a pimp, raise your hand if that pimp has ever made you go out when you didn't want to, raise your hand if that pimp has ever controlled your access to drugs. 99% of the time, these women are raising their hand. But then I'll say, you know, well, how many of you see that as human trafficking? Zero. It's just a lack of, yeah, it's a total lack of knowledge. Yeah, and the word pimp... I think that's
1: in some ways a loaded word because I think what my understanding with the survivors of human trafficking, the victims of human trafficking, they may call that person boyfriend Mm -hmm. instead of pimp. Yes. And so when you say that, I mean, they're like, no, 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 I'm not trafficked. That's my boyfriend. I'm just doing what I have to do.
2: Exactly. So the word pimp I use, I would never interchange trafficker with pimp. A pimp to me is like I said, somebody who's promoting prostitution, where there's not force fraud or coercion involved. Once they move into people have all kinds of names like gorilla pimps, things that indicate violence, to me, that's that's a trafficker. And I don't want to call them anything different because I think again, due to the media, there's for many people this like glory about the yeah. word pimp you know, especially from rappers and Ludacris and Snoop Dogg or whatever. And I don't want to glorify trafficking. So when I use the word pimp, I, I really am talking about somebody who may not engage in force, fraud, or coercion. And that oftentimes does resonate with the women, especially who have been charged with prostitution, who would be very willing to say, yeah, I have a pimp, but not willing to say, yeah, I have a trafficker. And even when they have been told what trafficking is and how what this person did does qualify as trafficking, they will say, and I hear this over and over, no, 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 he's just a pimp, he's just a pimp, he's just a pimp. It is very hard to get a victim or a survivor who is not ready to be able to confront the word trafficking or the word trafficker. They're fine most of the time with the word pimp. So what is your immediate response when they say, no, 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 that's just my pimp? It depends on the situation that I'm in. You know, if we're working in a court situation where they're a victim on a criminal charge, where we're charging the trafficker with trafficking— I will do my best to walk them through the law, um, clarify it for them. And also connecting them to services is really the most important because no matter how much I talk at them about what human trafficking is, it's not until they get in with y'all at end slavery or Thistle or you know Office of Family Safety and they sit down with somebody who can dissect the trauma a little bit more that they're ever going to say that this person was my trafficker. So sometimes I just don't push it. Sometimes I just let them use what they're comfortable with.
1: Yeah. I love that this is a 2-year program because it does take time to process all of that trauma and to acknowledge any type of trauma, you know, that is the process of having to face it. So it's a, it's a huge thing and that and that you've developed this core I'm still kind of astounded that this is a court system and all my images of what court looks like It does not look like sitting around a table with a balance of professionals who are there to not prosecute and harm you, but to actually support your recovery. I'm astounded.
2: My two supervisors who created the court were very in tune with the needs of these women. And the fact is, there's so much benefit to... These women being able to sit down with people that they usually consider scary or law enforcement, me as a prosecutor and judge as a judge, people who they're usually very not willing to speak to. To be able to have a team of people that includes people that they consider law enforcement is, I think, hugely beneficial in its own way. It's saying we care, first of all, not just because we have to, but because we do. And I think a big part of it is we are here to help and let us show you that rather than tell you that. And I think that kind of solidifies more of a trust, I guess, in law enforcement, which, again, decreases their vulnerability to being re-trafficked in their future if they feel that they can trust law enforcement.
0: Mm -hmm. Grace Empowered. Stacey, you have a really great story that kind of plays into that trust thing that I, I would love if you shared. Yeah, I had the
1: opportunity to attend Grace Empowered, and there was basically a room full of people. They'd had the prostitution charges, and they were there to attend a program. And one by one, the different service providers in Nashville would come forth and tell a story and just tell their point of view. So somebody from public health talked about sexually transmitted diseases and while we were in this class they actually got tested for that and I just served coffee and food I mean I just kind of I just paid attention and I remember when the public health nurse was saying, Oh, I'm going to take everybody's blood. There was one particular woman who kind of cringed a little bit and she was like, Oh, I'm nervous about that. And that is exactly my reaction to such a thing. So I, we had a little break. And during the break, I went over to her and I said, Look, um, if you want somebody to go with you while you're doing the blood, because I get it, I'll hold your hand or something. And she said, Oh, please, please do come with me. And I said, Okay. So when she left, I did. I held her hand and went back in. And here's my favorite part of the story. Because this is what I know that I built the trust. Later on in the day, one of the people, I don't know if she was from Enslavery or Thistle or even somebody from the Human Trafficking Court came up to me and said, Hey, uh, I just want you to know, one of the people in this program over here pointed at you and said, Hey, is that a recovering hoe? <laughs> 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 Talking Listen, about me. You made it then. Mm. Right? And that's what we're trying to do here at in slavery, Tennessee is to build the kind of trust so that the people that we want to serve say, Hey. You understand me, you get it, and I'm willing to trust you because I think you understand where I'm coming from. So to me, that's the biggest compliment of all. I'm not sorry at all to say that I'm not a recovering hoe, but I'm so I'm so happy that it's one of the pinnacle moments of mm-hmm. my experience here is to
0: know that I did identify and help someone mm-hmm. that's just the best. And I what I love about that story is that there's so much culture in that phrase that she said yep. using the word ho. <laughs> yeah. I've come to learn in these interviews that there's this nomenclature there's this system for what you call your fellow people who are doing this work with you lay sisters is a big one okay place yeah.
2: yeah and again that's why a lot of people say that there's like a particular vernacular you're supposed to use some particular verbiage surrounding you know human trafficking and you're supposed to say this or you're not supposed to say that and I think a lot of people would disagree with me using the word pimp at all. But I have found after my couple years working specifically with survivors and with women who have been charged with prostitution, it is important to meet them where they're at. And sometimes that's just using the words that they're comfortable using and not trying to get on your high horse and be all high and mighty and talk, you know, a certain way at them, but instead just meet them where they're at and talk with them. And that's why, especially in our grace and power class, I say it's a no judgment zone. You can curse in here, like, say what you want. No one is here to judge what you are doing. That's not what we're here for. Tell your story. We're not here to shame you. Mm -hmm. This very marginalized group of women, these women who have been charged with prostitution, most of whom are still very high-risk living on the street, who really feel a lot of shame surrounding what they're doing. We very rarely, very rarely have women go straight from our Grace Empowered class to some kind of safe housing or rehab. We offer it, but that very rarely happens, and that's okay. Our whole thing with our Grace Empowered class is that we plant the seed. We say, here's a whole bunch of people who really care, and if you're ready, when you're ready to get off the street and leave this life, you can come and find us, and here's where. A little different from our Cherished Hearts program, where, again, the women are criminally involved, so we are asking them to participate at that moment in time. Our Grace Empowered class is very much a seed planting endeavor. Just a here's, you know, where things stand. And I still will see women come through court who have been in Grace Empowered and they'll know my name and they'll ask me for help and, you know, ask me where to go and I'll call who I need to call and it will happen again and again. But the point is they know, you know, they know we're out there. They know people like Stacy come in and actually really care, care enough to go and hold their hand, not to just sit there and stare at them mm-hmm. or judge them.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some highlights from the last 10 years that have happened in
2: legislation? Sure. So a big one was getting Backpage shut down. I mean, there are still websites like Backpage, but Backpage was just a massive culprit of human trafficking. So getting Backpage shut down was a huge step in curbing the supply and demand nexus. But beyond that, a lot of the legislative changes have come with, number one, in regards to juveniles and how we handle juvenile survivors of trafficking. And number two, what we're going to actually constitute as human trafficking. So, again, I mentioned earlier that there is now this piece in the human trafficking statute that acknowledges access to a controlled substance as a form of coercion. That's fairly new. That's something that has come up in numerous ways and has now made its way into the actual law how we handle juveniles is i think probably the biggest change because it used to be that a juvenile could be charged with prostitution and the statute was patronizing or promoting prostitution of a minor and while it still exists that you there is still a promoting prostitution of a minor patronizing prostitution of a minor statute we really don't use them anymore because all commercial sex with a minor is now falls under human trafficking we no longer charge minors with prostitution. There is no such thing as a juvenile prostitute. So it is taking time to get that, again, that that verbiage changed where even sometimes I'll have, you know, law enforcement will get up and say, well, this 15-year-old was prostituting. Well, no, she wasn't. Mm. 15-year-old is a trafficking survivor, so we're going to approach it that way. Doesn't matter to me that the 15-year-old was doing a bunch of drugs. She's a kid. So that has been a huge shift in how we address juveniles. Another big shift is the services that we provide survivors. There is a brand new expungement law that is specific to survivors of human trafficking. So there's, you know, the general expungement law where you can wait five years and there's a list of charges that you can expunge after five years. The human trafficking expungement law, you can petition after one year. It has a couple of elements of it that make it a little bit unworkable, and that's something I'm actually really passionate about working on right now with some advocacy and and lobbyists that we are hoping to get this law changed to be more workable. But it's so cool that it even exists. It's amazing to see how now we are acknowledging again, that gray area between culpability and victimhood and acknowledging that survivors of human trafficking need our support retroactively for charges that they may have been picked up while they were being trafficked.
0: The first one was actually in season one. We had a survivor who was charged with prostitution, but it was a trafficking situation. She was HIV positive, and she's on a list of, uh, I think she said a couple dozen other women who are automatically on the child predator list.
2: What do you know about that? What's at play there? Nowadays, if we are acknowledging, as we are much more broadly, that this, let's say this woman was being trafficked, we would not have ever charged her with prostitution. Mm-hmm. If we suspect that somebody is being trafficked, law enforcement nowadays are trained to call for services instead of arresting for something like a prostitution charge or an aggravated prostitution charge. The goal is not to charge a victim. And the detectives, I will say, Agent Wilkerson with the TBIs who I work with, and then the detectives over at Metro Nashville who are specifically assigned to trafficking cases. First of all, it is a huge deal that we have this new human trafficking unit mm. over at uh, Metro Nashville Police Department. Again, an acknowledgment of the fact that this is real, that it's happening and that it deserves our attention. But second of all, those detectives who are in that unit are are wonderful. I mean, they're incredibly dedicated. Mm -hmm. They understand what they're looking for and what they're looking at. And it's something I hope that we can extend to patrol officers, because once you get the detectives involved, I feel, you know, you're pretty rest assured that the right things are going to happen. So.
3: Mm -hmm. I think it takes a while for a survivor to disclose. And so if we can have as many points of entry for that survivor to be able to disclose, they may not disclose to that police officer that they encounter, but maybe they'll disclose to their attorney or uh, victim advocate. Mm-hmm. Then if we can have those layers of points of entry, then hopefully those people can have access to the services that are currently available in Tennessee.
0: So... A conversation with Santoya Brown, whose case was popularized in recent years. In 2006, she was convicted first-degree murder of a man who solicited her for sex when she was 16. She was actually granted clemency in 2019 from Bill Haslam. Lots of popular conversation about this. There's been a lot of legislation enacted since then. So I don't want to ask how would Centoya's case be different? But if someone, if there were a 16-year-old uh, now who were in a similar situation, what might be at play? What has changed legally that wasn't at play in 2006?
2: So again, I would just say that the legislation that we have now that surrounds how we approach human trafficking, both in for survivors and also surrounding crimes that occur because of human trafficking— so much has changed in that realm that it's it's impossible to even compare what the climate was in 2006 surrounding human trafficking when we really hadn't even scratched the surface of understanding that it was even happening here. We just have so much more by way of resources, by way of intervention, Educa- education. Mm. And I feel like at this point we're intervening, or at least we're doing our best to intervene with at-risk youth before they reach the point that, you know, they're so ingrained in a trafficking situation that something so horrific and violent happens. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: again, we're certainly not perfect, but compared to 2006, we have made leaps and bounds in Mm -hmm. how we can provide support for at-risk youth.
0: And the episode actually the week before Centoia is talking about at-risk youth and juvenile vulnerability. And it's very interesting to see that there are a number of factors that you can see that early on in a child's life. And if you're able to step in, there could be some
3: prevention. Yeah. Social media and the connection of a child to a phone. Parents really need to educate themselves Mm -hmm. on what their child is doing on that phone. There's so many apps that none of us really understand, (laughs) or what they're doing on those apps, who they're meeting on those apps, what those people are asking them to do on those apps. And so, you know, there's so many layers to this, but parents educating themselves on what their children (laughs) are holding in their hand that could lead to opening doors that they never imagined. Well,
0: there was that video that Bark released of the undercover agent who they made her a fake profile and they Photoshopped her to look like she was 11 Mm -hmm. and that sort of live reporting. And I even know I have a sister in her twenties and she'll just post. And the amount of messages she gets from sugar daddies and people who might not, who are vulnerable will respond -hmm. respond because they don't have systems of protection. They need
2: family. They need validation.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think also it's been really interesting for us to look, you know, coming from the Cherished Hearts angle of all of our participants are obviously adults, but we in our screener, you know, have
3: questions about childhood traumas, like 99%. I was shocked, honestly, in doing this work, how many parents trafficked their child oh, yeah. and trying to ask this person to cut out their person's places or things, which is part of recovery, it's almost impossible when it's apparent that you're trying to cut out. There's so many emotions and traumas there. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. So it's so difficult.
1: That reminds me, I love that the human trafficking court is focused on victim identification and healing. But the victims are only a small piece of the puzzle of the big picture of human trafficking. Mm. There's the person who is being victimized, but there's also the perpetrators of the crime. And it's really money. It's Mm -hmm. money that's the driver, the demand you talked a little bit about. But then there's, how are we prosecuting the traffickers, which sometimes it sounds like might be apparent. That is a very complex dynamic that you've brought up. But I know that we do have to prosecute traffickers for their crimes. What does that look like?
2: I have a case currently that is a parent and a juvenile. It is a mother and a daughter. And it has been one of my most challenging cases by far because, like you said, that dynamic of a person who's in a position of trust, is it's just horrific. One of the things that I try to do, especially when it's family involved, and again, I have a parent and a child, but that's not the only family case that I have. I have husbands and wives. I have nieces and aunts. I have a ton of family relationships that, again, someone is being charged with trafficking. The best thing that I try to do is give the victim some level of autonomy in how this goes forward. And while that's not always possible, if they say I want this whole thing dismissed and I want nothing to do with it, that's obviously not going to happen. But in terms of my options in prosecuting, one of the things that, you know, I try to encourage is maybe we have a sentencing hearing instead of going to trial. So maybe I work out a plea agreement with the defense attorney that prevents this kid from having to testify against her mom, but she's still able to make a statement about what happened to her at sentencing. Sort of feeling out where that victim will feel comfortable with her role in what happened and also understanding that... My prosecution in these particular cases has to be more victim-centered than maybe I'm even used to or maybe even than sometimes I'm comfortable with because I have to honor, especially when I have juveniles who may have been trafficked by somebody in a position of authority or a close relationship, I have to honor that relationship and how this victim is going to be impacted for the rest of their life. So it's just important to give, to me at least, the victim – as much autonomy as I can during that process.
0: So, final question How are traffickers being held responsible in the state of Tennessee? And where do you see that really coming into play?
2: So, like I said, our human trafficking laws right now are really comprehensive. So, what's great is that we are really able to charge people who deserve to be charged with human trafficking and the barriers of defining human trafficking are becoming less and less because the statute has become so much more comprehensive. Human trafficking is a B felony on its face. There are also enhancing factors if it happens within 1,000 feet of a school or a park, if the juvenile is under 15 years old, and then it bumps it up to an A felony. Also, it's mandatory sex offender registration. So is promoting prostitution. That sex offender registration is extremely stringent. It's very hard to complete. So it definitely keeps people in line. Like I said, our legislation is very comprehensive. So what that allows me to do is to really look at the scale of culpability and and victimhood where that exists. Or it also allows me to look at the scale of severity of the crime. And I usually am able to make some kind of case. Now, I say that with pause because when it's not a juvenile and I have to prove force, fraud, or coercion, if I have a victim who drops off and no longer wants to participate in prosecution, they become extremely challenging to prosecute. It is extremely challenging to prove that somebody was forced or coerced to do something without that person there to say that they were forced or coerced to do something. Usually, circumstantial evidence can go so far, but especially if I have to take something in front of a jury, which it rarely happens because it's very hard to do, to take these to a jury trial. But that said, the fact that my office has even had a dedicated prosecutor do this shows how seriously my office takes human trafficking as a crime. And the fact that we are acknowledging the seriousness of it means that we are willing to prosecute it to our fullest extent, and that is what we do.
1: When you said
2: it's difficult
1: to prosecute without the testimony, a victim, I mean, to me, that just, the trauma involved in that process is remarkable. I can't imagine what it must be like for someone who's been
2: victimized, especially if it's the familial. It's almost asking too much. These prosecutions typically take a very long time, usually like a year and a half to two years, to get from the place of where somebody was charged to the place of where we're either looking at a plea or looking at a jury trial. The good part of that is that it does give the victim some space from their trauma, some opportunity to get the help and work through that so that if they do have to testify, hopefully they're in a better place than they were at the moment that their trafficker was arrested. I do a ton of education for myself about victimless prosecution. So it's not impossible. How do you say to a jury, like, she was coerced to do this, but she's not here to tell you how—
1: yeah. And, you know, we talked a little bit about movies portraying things. And in a movie, the victim is empowered and, you know, right. wins and the bad guy goes to jail. But it rarely looks like that.
2: Well, it certainly doesn't look like that on the scale of, like, efficiency that they make it look like <laughs> in movies. like you know, in law and order when they're like, well, we've arrested this person and the jury trial is tomorrow. Like that just is not. In one episode. Yeah. In in one episode. Um, That's just a a wholly unrealistic expectation of our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it's just the way that the media, TV shows and movies portray the things that attorneys are allowed to do in court is just so unrealistic. One example I can think of is I have a a survivor who I'm working with who it was her husband who was trafficking her and She wants me to be able to tell the court about the 90 other times that he abused her over the course of their life. But she never filed police reports. I don't have anything that, you know, I can use as a way to admit that into court as testimony. It's just her saying that these things happen. And while I would love to be able to have her testify about every single thing that this person has ever done to her, I can't. But in the movies, you know. Yeah. It's not about not believing her. It's about in court— It not being... It's not admissible. Admissible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's tough. So, yeah, again, that's just another false expectation that we have surrounding how our criminal justice system works and especially in trafficking cases. We are limited. We can only do what we can do. Yeah.
0: This has just been so incredibly helpful because getting things from a legal perspective is just so important because part of fighting this crime is a battle in a court of law. And so having your perspective, Anna, Sarah, thank you so much for taking your afternoon on a very, very busy day to talk with us.
3: (laughs) This has been a joy. We really appreciate it. We love talking about cherished hearts. It's a big part of our lives and we absolutely love the work. So thank you for giving us this platform. Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
2: You're welcome.
0: Additional information about the intersectionality of crime and trafficking can be found on this episode's page at inslaverytn.org podcast. In Slavery, Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of Someone Like Me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacey Elliott, and Marissa Brunel. Claire Bidigary Curtis is our engineer, and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson, thank you for listening.